The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. It's Friday, the 12th of January here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today... UK fighter jets join the US in launching airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. Christine Lagarde says that history suggests another Trump presidency would be a threat to European interests. Plus, we have a special report on some very large refund requests as private equity bankers demand their money back. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. The US and UK have launched airstrikes on more than 60 Houthi rebel targets in Yemen in retaliation for weeks of attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The Prime Minister Rishi Sunak described the move as limited, necessary and proportionate. President Biden left the door open to further action, saying in a statement that the continued attacks in the region would not be tolerated. Defence analyst Simon Diggins says Western leaders had to act. I think some kind of response was both necessary and justified. What now happens, of course, is the interesting question, how long will this continue for? Will there be a a kind of response? Will there be a dining down by the Houthis in terms of their attacks or will it escalate? Simon Diggins' warning of further escalation comes after the Houthi leader Abdul Malik al-Houthi used a TV address on Thursday to warn of a major response to the US and its allies if they proceeded with military action against the group. We will not hesitate to do everything we can, and any American aggression will never go unanswered. The response to any American attack will not be at the level of the operation that was recently carried out with 24 drones and several missiles, but rather much greater. The words of the Houthi leader there spoken by a translator. Now, deterring the Houthis, who are designated by the US and the European Union as a terrorist group, won't be easy. Since taking control of the Yemeni capital, Sana'a, in 2014, they've successfully withstood a Saudi Arabian-led military campaign to oust it and remains firmly entrenched. Oil has jumped more than 2.5% on the news as fears of escalation in the Middle East grow. The Houthis had launched their largest assault to date on shipping in the Red Sea earlier this week, despite the presence of a US-led naval force. Davide Seher, who's CEO of Algebris Investments, says for now things are under control. The market fundamentally cares about oil prices and the implication to the routes trade. I would say for the time being this is contained because the visa flares up, they're not being structural, uh, attracts more media attention rather than de facto economic impact. Despite Sarah's view, the news of airstrikes also pushed gold and stocks uh, of Asian shipping companies higher. 
The European Central Bank President, Christine Lagarde, is warning that a look at Donald Trump's first term as US President raises concerns about his potential return to power in 2025. The policymaker also shed light on when the market can expect monetary policy easing in the euro area. Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet has the story. Lagarde told France 2TV that, quote, if we should learn lessons from history, from the way he led the first four years of his mandate, it is clearly a threat. She said it's sufficient to look at the trade tariffs, the commitment to NATO, the fight against climate change in just these three areas in the past. American interests were not aligned with European interests. Lagarde also said the European Central Bank will start lowering interest rates once it is convinced that inflation is headed back to its 2% goal. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Radio. A trading probe probe at Morgan Stanley is expected to be resolved without criminal charges. The firm could announce a pact with authorities in the coming days. Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo has the story. Under $300 million will likely be enough to settle a years-long investigation into employee conduct at the bank. According to people with knowledge of the situation, Morgan Stanley is close to an agreement after Manhattan federal prosecutors and the Securities and Exchange Commission scrutinised its employees' handling of market-moving stock sales, or block trades. The payment would amount to less than investors' worst fears in a case that has hung over one of the lender's prized units and reverberated across the industry. Representatives for the DOJ, SEC and Morgan Stanley declined to comment. In London, Tiwa Adebayo, Bloomberg Radio. A $1 billion lawsuit which accuses HSBC of poaching secrets and employees when it acquired Silicon Valley Bank UK is going ahead. A San Francisco judge denied the UK bank's request to dismiss the legal action which alleges HSBC broke contracts and misappropriated information. But she added plaintiff first citizens needed to amend its complaint, describing it as confusing. China's exports posted the first full-year decline since 2016 as global demand faltered and prices fell, hurting a major pillar of growth for the world's second biggest economy. The country sold $3.38 trillion worth of goods to the rest of the world last year, a 4.6% drop from the record a year earlier. Shipments had soared during the pandemic as people stepped up purchases as they worked from home. But demand from Europe, the US and elsewhere faded as interest rates rose. Bitcoin's first ever ETF went live with record amounts of money changing hands. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust saw the largest ever first day turnover for an ETF with $2.3 billion exchanging hands. Founder of the crypto money transfer startup Strike, Jack Mallers, was bullish. I don't own any dollars anymore. I'm sick of them. You know, I think the real risk is owning dollars because all they do is go down. And traditionally, the game was, well, shoot, what do I own? The government's going to keep printing currency. They're in so much debt. Do I try and own a house? Do I try and own an index of stocks? Do I try and find out what Jeff Bezos is up to now that he's not the CEO of Amazon? And Bitcoin is the most accessible, most simple, best expression of this problem. Mallers called the price of Bitcoin hitting between $250,000 to a million in 2025. The token's currently trading at just over $46,000, less than a fifth of his forecast. 
Now, in a moment, we'll talk you through the market reaction to those US and UK strikes in Yemen. But let's first of all get more details on what's actually happened in the past 12 hours as we have heard news that the US and the UK have launched airstrikes on those militant targets in Yemen after the weeks of attacks on Red Sea shipping by the Iranian-backed group. Our Middle East breaking news editor, Dana Kresh, is with us for more. Good morning to you. What is the size and scope then of this operation? Good morning. Um, the U.S.-U.K. strikes were definitely considerable. The U.S. and allies executed what they said was deliberate strikes on more than 60 targets at 16 Houthi sites. Um, what they used, some uh, 100 precision guided munitions of various types were used in the strikes. The targets included command and control centers, munition depots, launching system, production facilities, and even air defense radar uh, systems. Um, so the attacks were considerable. And we heard a lot of um, Houthi sources saying that there were explosions in Sana'a in the capital and, of course, near the Hudayda port. Mm. The Houthi leader on Thursday vowing a, quote, big response if the US and allies took military action. What is their position we had the first response from the Houthis earlier today saying that the act was a foolish one from the U.S. and it would be wrong to think that such strikes would deter them. Um, they also said that their aim was and will continue to be uh, preventing Israeli ships or ships heading to Israel from passing until Israel stops its aggression on Gaza. Their leader has had a televised address yesterday before the attack, but likely, of course, in anticipation of that. He said that they would respond to any strikes on them and it would would even surpass the level that they carried out on a U.S. ship earlier this week. That was their largest since they started. Donna, Saudi Arabia has called for restraint. The UN Security Council is going to discuss events in the Middle East today, but it's Iran's response to the attack on its proxy that will surely determine what happens in the next stage of this crisis. Indeed, what we're waiting for to see is how and if Iran would respond, not the government itself, but of course, through the proxies, as has been the case um, since October 7. Tehran has said that it doesn't want an escalation that could lead to a wider war. But the question is whether Iran or its proxies will feel like they would want to save face. Israel has expanded its attacks on Hamas and Hezbollah beyond its border, and now the U.S. is striking the Houthis. So from Iran's perspective, this is an escalation and it threatens its assets that are assets that are spread out in the region and have somewhat been successful in cementing Iran's influence in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, uh, Other um, events that we're waiting for today, I mean, certainly the UN Security Council discussing the Middle East once more. Um, this is a conflict that has so many players now around the world involved. Yes, indeed. So what we're waiting for is, of course, reactions from um, the UAE and more on how the Saudis will witness this. Both the UAE and Saudi Arabia um, have kind of made it clear that they don't want the conflict in Yemen to expand. They have been trying to put out that fire for a while and putting so much effort into that. The Houthis have been also a threat to both these countries. Um, we remember a couple of years back, the Houthi drones were um, being launched toward the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And in 2019, um, Houthis claimed a drone strike on an Aramco oil facilities, and that briefly knocked out some 50% of Saudi Arabia's oil production. So this is a real threat in the region, the Houthis themselves, and on the Gulf. So it just remains to see how much the Gulf countries, especially UAE and Saudi Arabia, the biggest influencers here, um, would react to that.
Okay, Donna Crashaw, Middle East Breaking News Editor, thank you very much. Well, following the airstrikes on Houthi targets, oil prices rose, reflecting concern about the possibility of a broader conflict in the Middle East. Joining us now to discuss is our Middle East energy reporter, Anthony DiPaolo. Good morning. Thank you for your time, Anthony. What has been the reaction exactly in oil markets? Good morning. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, yeah, we have seen an increase in, in oil prices, as you said, uh, both on uh, the U.S. benchmark uh, WTI and the uh, European Global Benchmark Brent. Uh, we're up about 2% now, and we're close to, to some of the, the day's highs in terms of gains. Uh, but uh, that that price is, is perhaps a little bit muted if you're considering uh, a, a you know, the prospect of a, of a region-wide war. It doesn't seem like uh, oil markets are pricing that risk uh, in a, as much as you might think. I mean, at, at below $80 on Brent, we're still below some of the levels that we saw last year. Uh, and that's because the market is kind of looking through uh, the current risk at, at the fundamentals and, and traders are feeling that the market is a little bit long uh, in terms of supply, that there's a little bit too much out there. Uh, and, and that is uh, keeping a lid on prices at the moment, even though we do have this increase. It's not as, as, as high as you might expect. Of course, there is the prospect of, of back and forth attacks now potentially over the coming days. How much are crude flows actually at risk here? Yeah, that's a big question, and uh, and I would say from the looking at the oil price, uh, it doesn't seem that that the market is pricing in that much risk. So what we've seen is, uh, you know, our, our attacks on shipping, uh, mainly in the Red Sea, uh, since about uh, mid December, and uh, and and the risk there has been mainly on commercial shipping. Uh, cargo vessels. Uh, we haven't really seen oil tankers targeted as much. Uh, so I think that's why the market is, is discounting uh, that risk of, uh, of an impact on oil prices. We did see yesterday a uh, uh, an oil tanker that was uh, seized in um, on the exit of the Persian Gulf. Uh, however, we have seen Iran take some vessels in kind of tit-for-tat responses uh, when when some of their oil flows have been impeded. So uh, the market didn't really react to that yesterday either. So I think they're seeing that as kind of an isolated uh, impact mm-hmm. uh, rather than than a, than a, than a full-on uh, focus on taking and interrupting oil oil flows. Okay, very interesting. Anthony, I understand that your focus is uh, on the energy markets, but just can you speak a little bit to the broader market reaction so far? Is that also quite measured, quite sanguine, given the concerns? Um, Does that underestimate the risks of a growing conflict? How are the broader markets reacting? Yeah, I mean the market is is also looking a, a bit more relaxed uh, generally as well, and and uh, and I think oil kind of does also set the tone for that, and um, you know as I said, uh, oil specifically isn't isn't being targeted, and that's because as as Donna was saying uh, it, just in the previous segment uh, that the biggest producers here, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which is which is the largest producer in OPEC, uh, they are being very cautious uh, around this in order not to. Uh, say, uh, not, not to attract attention, but not to attract any ire towards them. Uh, Saudi Arabia, both and the UAE, have been um, victims of attacks before, and they really want to avoid that. So they are uh, taking care to, to kind of um, mm. keep themselves out of this uh, out of this conflict. And there is a lot of uh, recognition that 
uh, Iran also seems to not want to uh, get directly involved in that. They are acting through proxies, but it seems that on, on all sides, uh, there's less interest in getting kind of a direct war between, say, uh, Western countries and Iran uh, specifically. So they seem to be... Um, looking to do this through the proxies at the moment and that uh limits the risk of that of that wider war uh that said there's always the risk for incidents when you've got a lot of military equipment in the region a lot of a lot of conflicting interests a lot of military equipment there so there's always the risk for for accidents which could uh, lead to an escalation here so it, the risk is still high but markets are really uh, discounting that and i think they're looking through uh, at the fundamentals and kind of the will of these countries not to allow that that war to spread more widely. Okay, Anthony Japalo, Middle East energy reporter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, we'll turn our attention elsewhere this morning to some of the most influential investors who are giving the world's largest private equity firms a message. If you want money for your next fund, here is our list of demands. Sovereign wealth funds and state pension providers are among investors who are telling money managers that they will only commit in their upcoming fundraisers if their capital tied up in old funds is released. This, according to people with knowledge of the matter, is a very interesting story. And our reporter, Laura Benitez, who's been looking into this, joins us now. Laura, good morning. What sorts of requests are PE firms facing now from some of their largest investors? Well, they are saying, you know, if you want our commitments to your upcoming funds, then you have to release previous distributions from previous vintages of private equity funds. Um, They're also asking for more disclosures into underlying investments. And they're asking for things like, you know, more power at the table, bigger seat at the table, co-investments, things like that. How are private equity firms keeping their investors sweet then, considering the distributions and and fund exits which have been challenged? Well, they're doing things like raising NAV loans um, as a way to release funds and give them some distributions back. Um, So that's a a short-term solution, if you like. But there's all sorts of creative thinking going on behind the scenes, things like secondary funds, where you can sell your stake on of your fund into a secondary market, but you might be taking a 10 to 15% discount if you do that. Yeah, I mean, the private equity firms have had had such a strong run. How is it that the power sort of shifted now to the investors? Well, things like fund distributions last year were at all-time lows. You know, Mm. exits were at all-time lows. Um, And I think, you know, investors now are more concentrated. So you've got these big, powerful investors and they're becoming, you know, sort of a a smaller like handful of of players, if you like. So I think they've now got this real clout and heft and they're able to actually, you know, kind of pull the, the strings a little bit more than they have done before.
Who are we talking about here? Who are some of those uh, big backers of private equity and, and how, I suppose, has that cast evolved over the years? That's a really interesting one because, you know, five years ago we saw we didn't really see many Middle East funds in the top ten or even certainly not the top five. Now, you know, there are like there's five Middle Eastern funds that are in the top ten um, players and investors in private markets. So you're talking about PIF, Adia, Mabadla, ADQ. So you can really see that concentration building up in the Middle East, which is a really interesting, you know, sort of evolvement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so then in terms of fundraising for private equity, this year, what are the prospects? So for private equity, it's looking, it's not looking great so far. Mm. I mean, you know, forecasts from data providers like PitchBook, for example, are saying that it's looking like it'd be 30% below it has been or the median levels for this year. Um, private credit, you know, that's looking a little bit brighter. But again, you've got a handful of players there that are raising, you know, huge amounts of money. Um, so it, it's quite concentrated. So it could be quite patchy, um, but it'll be an interesting year to follow, I think, in terms of fundraising. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, how different is the situation for private credit? I mean, you say a little, a little bit brighter, but is it a case that, you know, investors are shifting from one to the other? Um, I think so. I think private credit is obviously, you know, it's become a very trendy uh, catch-all concept in the last year or so. And there's been a lot of reallocations to private credit because, you know, there's there's more attention around the, you know, the market and the you know, fees are sometimes more lucrative for investors. Um, but as I said, you know, there really are just a handful of, of, um, of firms, private credit lenders that are taking the, the lion's share of fundraising at the minute. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.